0: Many times we've heard the expression, when one door closes, another one will open. But we're not always so patient for that next door to open. Sometimes we try to force the closed door open or we run to the nearest window to get out so that we can head that direction. And while sometimes in life we may be so goal-oriented that we go towards things, but I think oftentimes we mistake doors that have shut as loss instead of gain. You see, it's all in about perspective. Think about it today. What good has come to your life due to some closed doors? Mm Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks. We talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Uh, I was on TikTok a few weeks ago and I ran across uh, a guy named Collier Landry. Did I say that right? Collier. Yeah. Yeah. Proud of myself there. I typically get it wrong on the first try. Uh, But Collier has, uh, he's the host of a podcast called Moving Past Murder, and that podcast kind of caught me off guard with the name of a podcast like that. But I come to know real quick why you are into uh, true crime being a trauma survivor. So we're excited about having you here with us on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm I'm, I'm happy to be here.
0: Not a problem. Well, I'm not going to try to uh, tell any part of your story. I'm just going to let you kind of lead into uh, how you are a trauma survivor of moving past murder.
1: Sure. So I grew up in Ohio in a small town called Mansfield, which at that time probably had about twenty to 30,000 people in the county. My family had moved there from Virginia when I was about five years old. My father was a doctor. I grew up what I thought was kind of in a normal circumstance as far as the family dynamic, but I was extremely close with my mother and not very close with my father, who was a workaholic, who was abusive, very verbally, physically, you know, had this sort of rage like temper and he wasn't around a lot. And I was always told, well, he wasn't around a lot because he was working and, you know, he was a doctor. So I would go on like rounds with him um, when I was a kid to the, the hospital and things like that. That was sort of my relationship with him and go on ski trips occasionally things like that but around memorial day in 1989 he introduced me he took me to this this house and it was on him it was out in the middle of the country and he had introduced me to a friend of his and this friend was a young woman and i had noticed them walking around the lake in the backyard and he had his arm around her. And I asked my father, I said, I said, why did you have your arm around her? And he goes, yo, she's dying of cancer. She's very sick. You know, I'm just comforting her. This, that and the other, right? So I didn't think anything of it. About a month later or a few weeks later, it was Father's Day. And my father took me to his office and then he went to get, my dad would get like a tan. (laughs) So we went to the suntan place and the same woman showed up. And he's like, oh, look who's here, it's Sherry. And I noticed on her finger, she had a ring that looked like my mother's ring that I'd recognized. And I was like, oh, my mommy has a ring like that. And she just kind of giggled and whatever. And she gave us these radio control cars. Now, as I'm playing with the radio control car, I look over and my father is kissing her. But like, as I say, when I was a kid, like a tongue kiss. Mm-hmm. It was an intimate thing. And when we got in the car, my father asked me to lie to my mother and tell her that not tell her about Sherry and to tell her that if I could do daddy a favor and just tell her that he got me the radio control car for getting good grades at his office. So that night we went out. I got really sick. I I was just so sick for lying to my mother. I felt so bad and I was just wondering like who this woman was. So the next morning I was playing in the radio control car. My mother was sitting on the porch and I was like, I, I have to be honest with my mother. And so I sat her down, and I said, mommy, I think daddy's having an affair. And I told her the whole thing. And she very calmly said, well, thank you for telling me. I appreciate you being honest. And she went in, she got on the phone, she started yelling. And uh, she basically said to my father, I want a divorce. Unbeknownst to me, that my father had been having extramarital affairs the entire time they were married. So they had been married at this point, like 20 years. 21 years. And their sort of arrangement was, you can do whatever you want. Just don't involve our kid. And the moment you involve Collier, all bets are off. And that's what happened. So this ugly divorce started proceeding. And my father was a very angry, nasty person. And on the morning of December 31st, 1989, at about 3.15 a.m., I woke up, in the middle of the night to like a scream. And then I heard two loud thuds about 60 seconds apart. And then I heard 12 footsteps come down the hallway and I slept with my door open. And what happened was is I was laying in bed and I was terrified and I could see the feet in my doorway. And I just said to myself, I was like, you know, I was like, don't look up. Like something was telling me, do not look up. So I didn't. I ended up going back to sleep that night. I woke up the next morning, I ran straight to my mother's room. I noticed the sheets were all scattered and messed up. I was looking for signs of blood. I was looking for this evidence, whatever this was, right? I came downstairs. My father was sitting on the couch. He had just taken a shower. And I said to him, where is my mother? And my father said, well, mommy took a little vacation, call here. And he started getting into this whole thing about, you know, We're not going to call the police. We're not going to call the FBI. We're not going to call, you know, he tells me this whole story about her leaving. And it it was just, I knew it was bullshit. I knew he was lying to me and I knew that my mother was dead. And I was just like, oh, you're going to try to get away with this. So the moment he left my house, I had saved phone numbers from my mother's friends and I immediately called them. My mom had just gotten a cordless phone. So I ran upstairs in the bathroom and hid and called all these people. And I said, Mommy's mommy's gone. And I immediately, you know, went into like crisis mode. I said, You need to call the police and you need to tell them this is what happened. So two arm, you know, two police officers came to the house. They looked around. I know my grandmother was staying there. She had come the night before because she and she was very close with my mother. They were almost like sisters. It was very odd. So this is my father's mother. Her behavior turned strange immediately. And she was yelling at me about letting the police in and how dare you do this. And so the police left and I followed up with my mom's friends and they said, well, they're treating it as a missing person's case. They filed this report. And I was like, she's not missing. She's dead. I was like, fuck this. What happened is, is this one detective happened to see the missing person's case and came to the house. And my grandmother refused to let him in. And I grabbed the door and I let him (laughs) right in the house. My grandmother goes to talk on the phone to call my father. She's like, I'm calling my son right now. And she's irate that I let him in. She's so angry. And I grab him and I say to him, my mother is dead. Like, she's not missing. She didn't just up and leave. My mother would never leave me. She's dead. And he gave me his business card, which I hid. And he laughed, you know, he asked some questions, you know, then he left because she was like, you need to get out of here. My son is that. and So he had come back the next day and was turned away because um, uh, my father's lawyers were at the house now, his divorce divorce lawyer, and said, oh, he's not talking to the police and that blah, 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 right? So I'm like, well, that's that's not going to work for me. So I go to school the following day because we're back from school because it's Christmas break. And I say to the principal, I, I hand her the card. I was like, you need to call the Mansfield Police Department. and I And I want to talk to this guy because I knew at that point that I would be able to Safely outside of my home, talk to this police officer and tell him everything. And to this detective, uh, Lieutenant David Messmore. And he came and to the school and I told him everything. I told him about the the divorce. I told him about the girlfriend. I told him about this. And I told him, I said, look, I'm gonna go home tonight. And while my grandmother is dealing with my sister, I'm gonna run upstairs, I'm gonna go to the crawl space and I'm gonna pull the bookshelf out and look at the crawl space for my mother's body. I'm going to look for her purse. I'm going to look for this. And this went on for a couple of weeks. And I would have Dave Messmore come to my school and I would say, look, you know, like what's going on with the case? Here's some things that I found in the house, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until I was with my father, we, were, we had stopped at a gas station and he went inside to pay for gas. And I start rummaging through his truck and I open the console and I find two Polaroid pictures. One is of a house. And the second picture is of his girlfriend with her two children sitting in front of a fireplace that's covered in plastic and I thought I was like this is like a, this is a new house and then get Dave Messmore, I you know at the school, I tell him about this house about a few days later now my father is traveling back and forth to Erie Pennsylvania because he's setting up a new medical practice up there with his girlfriend's uncle you know he's coming back and forth and he says to me and he, and he like has me rub like Ben Gay on his shoulders and stuff. And he was very sore and he had marks on his hands and things like that, which I took note of and I told, you know, mess more And then he says to me, he goes, Well, I have a medical conference. And because he started acting like a little off. I mean, he was already a little off, but now it was even more like he might know that I'm talking to someone. And he said, Well, I have a medical conference in Florida that I'd like you to come with because that was sort of typical. Like every year we would go to a couple of medical conferences. They were always in like Clearwater Beach, Florida, Tampa area. And we would, you know, do that as a family, right? And go to like bush Gardens and whatever. But this was weird because I, my mom isn't around and it would just be me and my father, which I don't want to be around him. He's not a nice person. And I'm pretty sure that he suspects that I've been talking to the police. So I say to Dev, Dave Messmore, I'm like, you have got it. Like my father wants to take me to... <laughs> To Florida, I said I've been I have been able to swim since I was four years old. I am going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. You got to get me out of my house. And on the morning of January twenty fourth, nineteen ninety, at about six a.m., these two strangers are in my bedroom and they're like, "You need to pack a bag with all your things. You have twenty minutes, and we need to leave." And at that point, the whole crime lab comes in the house, and there's like all these like scanners and police officers and men in white lab coats and. I end up going into a, to a temporary sort of living situation that night. I have a really a bad, horrible asthma attack. The next morning, I find out, I go to the hospital for treatment. I get my treatment. Then they they tell me, they say, you know, Lieutenant Messmore found your mother and she was dead. So ultimately what happened is that house is what, when I found that house, it tipped them off that there was another house because this is 1990 now. there's no Zillow, there's no Google, <laughs> like you can't like just easily find this stuff, right. But they were like, "Oh, and it was ultimately that under that house, under the basement floor, underneath indoor outdoor carpeting and new shelves, my mother's body was buried underneath like four feet of concrete. and they exhumed her body. It was still wet. And then that's when they charged my, they arrested and charged my father with murdering my mother. My father's side of the family was blaming me for my father getting caught, my father just saying you're going to put your fathers in prison. And my mother's side of the family hated my father so much for molesting their two daughters, which had occurred a year previous. Now, I didn't know any of this until much later on in my life, but there was this hatred of him, which is understandable, right? But they basically said to me, "We can't take you in because uh, you look like your father." <laughs> mm. And I was abandoned by both sides of my family at a moment that I was in my most need. And the one person in my life that could have made all this better was was dead because there was no circumstantial ev- or evidence. I'm sorry, because all the evidence was circumstantial. My father running the jackhammer to to bury her body buying the concrete, the house, the asking about lowering the basement floor in the house, all of these things, but there was no like blood or fingerprints or anything. My testimony is what got my father indicted and is ultimately what, you know, I testified at trial for it was either a day and a half or two and a half days against my father for the prosecution because I knew he was guilty and he is still incarcerated to this day. I had to do all of that without any family support. Yeah, that was definitely the nature of my life for sure. And I had to sort of find the strength, which I attribute to my mother. But, you know, there weren't a lot of options at that point. You know, I mean, here's the thing my life is already over (laughs) as I know it. You know, I had been taken out of my house. I said, Oh, you can come back and get your dog. I never saw my dog again that I love so much. I knew that. If my father doesn't get convicted, you know, my life is going to be over because he's Italian and like they don't take too kindly to that. He, he's going to make my life a living hell or, or stick me in a ditch. And I knew that, um, you know, at the same time, if I don't testify, then I'm, you know, not honoring my mother. I'm not doing the right thing. And ultimately, I'm also not. I'm not really living my truth. I'm not, I'm not doing the right thing. My mother taught me to do the right thing. And I knew what the right thing was. I knew that he murdered my mother. He wasn't going to get away with it. I mean, I had been leading the investigation for like the month before they discovered her body with the detective. And, you know, I knew I had to stand up for her in court. And so I testified in court for, for, like I said, for like a day and a half against my father. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. And, and even the prosecution, they said, you know, look, we can, we we don't need you to testify. We have enough evidence after the case and after, you know, the whole thing, you know, <laughs> they're like, you know, ultimately you testifying is what led to his conviction because we, he probably would have been convicted. <laughs> yeah.
0: How old were you when all of this took place?
1: I was 11 when my mother disappeared and I was 12 when it went to trial. So I was testifying in court, staring down my father at 12 years old. Mm-hmm. I was saying, you're a monster, you're a fucking monster. And I'm going to make sure you go to prison for mm-hmm. murdering my mother because he did. And you know I lived in this small town. I stayed there. I was finally adopted out of the foster care system after about a year into a into a, a loving family. But strangers, you know, my my again my family wanted nothing to do with me both sides. And that hurt really bad, you know, being rejected and not understanding why I was rejected because I'm thinking, well, why am I the adult in the situation? I grew up saying to myself, i don't want to be known for this but i also i want to tell my mother's story i need to honor my mother and i need to move on with my life and the way to do that is to tell the story so i didn't want to the problem is is where i grew up like every time i would come in a room people would be like oh that's the best again you know so Mm -hmm. it preceded me i wanted to go to a place where nobody knew who the fuck i was and i decided i went to music school for a few years, and I and I dropped out and I moved to Los Angeles because I was like I need to tell this story, and I ultimately became a filmmaker, and I never told anybody what my story was, my my peer group or anything. I just became a filmmaker. I was working. I was working cinematographer. So I had seen a movie in 1999 called American History X, and it's about Edward Edward Norton plays a neo-Nazi, and it's about the the ramifications of violence. And I said, well, whoever made that film really gets understands the consequences of violence because for me growing up the one thing that i was very cognizant of is i would see these stories or hear these stories and we would say you know okay the bad guy goes to jail the state gets his restitution the victim is dead the judge's gavel hits and we say next and we never look at the consequences we never examine like what happens to the ancillary victims? What it happens to this, you know, people have non-combat PTSD. What happened to the friends of the family? What happened to the son? What happened to the to the, the girlfriend? Like we never look at the consequences of these violent acts on people. So I had seen that film and I said, whoever made that, you know, I want to help me tell my story. Flash forward eight years later, my girlfriend at the time comes in and says this movie producer wants to photograph her for a coffee table book because she was a model. And so, well, movies has been done and. One of the movies she rattled off was American History X. I said, let's meet him. And then John Morrissey and I became friends. And after a couple of years, I, he was looking you know, for a project and he wanted to do something. And I was like, no, I was like, what you need to do is what you do with American History X. I want to make it, I want to do a docu about the consequences of violence. And here's the best news is, is I have the rights to the pilot. And I gave him a book, which sits over my right shoulder here, of newspaper clippings from the trial. And from when my mother went missing up until through the trial and through, the year two thousand, about the case, and he read it and he goes, <laughs> he's like, "This is your life," and I was, he's like, "Holy shit, man! I'm so sorry." And I was like, "No, I was like, I want to do something positive with this because this is what I, this is why I came here. This is what I wanted to, this is what I've chosen to do with my life. I, I don't want my story, my mother's story, my, my mother's death to be in vain. I want to teach people from this. I want to examine the consequences of violence. I want to talk about what. I mean, this is what I'm most passionate about is." showing people that you can come through extraordinary circumstances and seemingly insurmountable odds and defy them and come out the other side. Okay. Mm. You won't be unscathed, but you'll be okay. And I became, you know, I've been passionate about that my whole life. And now it's very in fashion to look at the consequences of violence and what happens and oh, these it's now it's very cool to be that person that talks about these things and, you know, call it woke culture, whatever you want to label it as. It's just the thing of the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Back then, this was not what people were doing. And so if that was really like the, one of the things that drove the fire in my belly is to tell my story and to share to share these things. So, you know, he said to me, he goes, well, I, I know someone who's won two Academy Awards for documentaries. I think she'd be really interested in this. And that was Barbara Koppel. And so over the next five, six years, we put together this project I made a film called A Murder in Mansfield for Investigation Discovery. I'm the creator and and co-executive producer. And it came out the end of 2018 and got very popular during the pandemic. And then uh, I always wanted to start a podcast. And I started a podcast called Moving Past Murder, where I discuss not only my own story, I share my father's letters from prison. Like every so every few episodes, what I'll do is I'll, I, I have a bin of all my, they're underneath my desk right now, of all my father's letters from prison over the course of almost 30 years and I'll just randomly open one I haven't looked at it and I just read it. Just like I did in the film there's the scene where I confront my father in prison that's sort of how the the whole film culminates and because, because my and I and I did a TED talk on the same subject my impetus for doing all of this is I wanted to find out why my father murdered my mother. That has been my drive ever since I was a kid and I wanted to equally share the message that you can do stand up and do the right thing and like I said, defy these seemingly insurmountable odds. But for me, it was a straight up passion of just trying to figure out why this happened, why would somebody do something so horrific? And and also cope with the fact that, like, I'm related to this person. This is my father. This is, am I capable of these things? So in my podcast, I examine all of these things and I talk to other trauma survivors and, and people that that you know have been through these types of circumstances, like Tara Newell from Dirty John, who who took Dirty John's life or John Meehan's life as he was trying to kill her you know and he ultimately would have killed her whole family i believe and she believes the same thing if it didn't stop and you know she's you know half this man's size right but there's times in life you're called upon by whatever you want to call it to just stand up and face down evil and that's what i was able to do as a child and ultimately i share that story and i, I you know i wanted my goal was to with the film was to sort of put these questions to bed for myself and to just to really get the answer that I was looking for, which is why my father murdered my mother, but I also wanted to, to speak to that one kid, who was me in foster care, completely abandoned by your family. Your your whole world is falling apart, and you don't know what's going to happen. You're just living in constant uncertainty. And I wanted to speak to that child, to that person, to let them know that it's going to be like it's going to be okay. And that was my goal when I did it. And the impact that it had was exponential because the amount of people that had seen the film that reached out because then it was on Investigation Discovery became wildly popular. It's a very well directed film. I mean, Barbara's won two Academy Awards, and it's you know, it's uh, I, and sort of my sort of superpower, if you will, is that is my vulnerability and my authenticity. And in the film, I am one hundred percent vulnerable, and you know, there's there's scenes with the with the psychologist where I'm talking about all this and it's just, it's warts and all. And I feel that that's the thing that really is connected most with the audience. That's what connects most with the audience, with my podcast. I mean, you saw me on TikTok, and I'm talking about these same things just straight to the camera, telling my story as it exists, as it happens. And it's amazing with digital media and these mediums. And look, I, like I said, I'm a filmmaker but it's amazing to be able to share your story in these ways and impact so many people's lives. It's very
0: cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you said, you know, you did all this kind of with a passion to find out why your father murdered your mother. Have you gotten that answer or have you gotten close to what you feel is the answer?
1: Well, I mean, here's the thing. No, when you, not to you know, spoiler alert on the film, but my father's my father is a sociopath mm-hmm. and a psychopath and a narcissist. So people like that ultimately do not have empathy. They, mm-hmm. It does not exist with them. So, right. and they don't feel sorry for what they've done. They don't think they've done anything wrong. <laughs> they think that they're, they've been the one that's wrong. I mean, I guarantee that my father still feels that like, because my mother was getting a divorce, she deserved it. That she called him out on his bad behavior of impregnating a girlfriend, involving your your son, your child into this and then and then treating everyone so poorly and, and being an abusive husband and an abusive father. I think that they, you know, he's like, well, damn her for, for getting a divorce. It's her problem. You know, that's mm-hmm. how these people think. So no, I mean, ultimately, I mean, yes, I did get the answer. And then, like I said, I've done a TED talk and the TED talk is called what if the answer you seek is not the answer you need or the answer you find, right? right? So ultimately what I discovered is, is I had set out so much so as to make my whole life a mission to tell the story so I could find out this answer. And then when it came time to get that answer, I didn't get what I was expecting. But ultimately, and I say this to my father, I say to him in the film, which is the, the last thing I say to him pretty much, I say, I believe that you believe that because he's telling me this wild story. And that's there's my answer like that is my answer you're incapable of doing that like i'll never get what i think this idea is of this perfect closure or this closing of the chapter it doesn't exist you you won't get that mm-hmm. and ultimately i think that that's what this is about is being able to make peace with that and that's what i talk about you know on the program and i talk about you know obviously narcissism psychopathy sociopathy and how these things impact people but also just like being comfortable with the fact that you're that this is about you. <laughs> you know, I talk about forgiveness a lot too, because people had said to me over the years before, long before I made the film, but like when I would tell them the story, they'd be like, well, I mean, how do you forgive your father? You can't have forgiven your father. And, you know, how could you forgive him? You're letting him off the hook. And I said, you're not understanding this. Like the forgiveness is not about him. Mm-hmm. It's not for him, it's for me. <laughs> right. It's for me to forgive. And it's for me to move on. I mean, that's why it's called moving past murder, right? You know, it's it's making peace with these things and going, because ultimately, like when I think about getting the answer of my father's, why my father murdered my mother, what answer would he be able to give me that I would accept? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're a psychologist, right? You're, you're, you understand that. Like, how would, like, what would actually ultimately be, <laughs> be, the, be satisfactory to me? Nothing.
0: Yeah. Because you're a rational person. Of course. Yeah. And so we ask the question a lot of times when people want these closure questions, we would say something to the effect of to what end, you know, because whatever you get is not going to be the answer that you want to receive, whether it be the truth from that person or not. Because in my mind, anybody that can commit murder in that way lacks a lot of empathy and apathy as it is anyway. So, and man, but you, you know, you got a double whammy there, uh, losing your mother and then your mother's family, not wanting anything to do with you and going into foster care. And but my, my, you, and my father's side of the family, both of them. Yeah, yeah. So does your father still write you letters?
1: I mean, I haven't really had much communication with him since the film. You know, I communicated with him during COVID because it was his prison that got taken over by the National Guard that made all the national news. And then that was, and he's communicated with me a few times, but not for like a, at least six months. I don't really, I don't write back to him. Mm-hmm. I stood up, I said that to him, you know, I believe that you believe that. And that's my answer. I gave him a hug and I told him I loved him. And it was funny because I was, you know, I was being interviewed by this reporter, I think from the New York Times. And he was saying to me, he said, you know what moment when I watched the film just sums up you in three seconds. If I know everything about you in this three seconds. I said, what is that? And he goes, When you stand up and your father just tells you, has just gotten done gaslighting you and, you know, telling you all this, you know, not giving you the answers that you're looking for. You stand up and you hug him and you say, I love you, pop, as he walks out of the room. Mm -hmm. You know, that tells me everything I need to know about you, Collier. Like You're that person. I was like, yeah, I guess so. So, I mean, I don't communicate, you know, with, with him. I mean, he just turned 79 last, like two weeks ago. You know, I don't know how I can relate to him he's not a relatable person because he's not a human being in the normal sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So for me, as I try to reconcile with all of that, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Like what relationship would I ultimately have with him? I mean, I maintained a relationship with him for years because I wanted to tell this story. I mean, my father, when he comes in the room in the movie, he's got a big smile on his face and he's very happy to be there. And he's like, Oh yeah. Happy to be here because he thinks At up until that point that I am making a movie to help him get out of prison. Mm. So he is, you know, completely delusional. Mm. (laughs) And he's just not, I say to him, right. Then I say, you know, ever since one of the things I've been interested in ever since you murdered my mother, as soon as I said that to him, like his whole demeanor changes. Then I read this letter that I wrote to him asking him, to come clean about the murder so I could move on with my life. So everyone could move on with their lives when I was 13 and he read it, wrote refused and sent it back, mm-hmm. wrote refused on the side of the envelope. And I saved that for all those years.
0: So as, as someone who is a trauma survivor, one of the biggest things that that I notice or that I recommend is to, to make it through is structure. Do you find that, that, structure helps you to get through everyday life and
1: well it's interesting you said that i just interviewed a gentleman two weeks ago named uh dr anhel iskovich and he wrote a book called the art of routine i was very fascinated to have him on as a guest because i definitely feel i mean you call it structure i call it routine i definitely feel having a routine or i guess having a structure in life really does help you lead you through trauma i 100 percent agree with that and when I get thrown off my routine, I get frazzled. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I like to exercise. I like to be healthy. I like to do, you know, certain activities. And when I'm not living that way, I get really anxious or I get, and I, and I can, and as I talk about these things more and more, I'm more aware of them. And as I share them, I'm more aware of them. And as I talk to other survivors, I'm more aware of them. And I realize how important these things are. So yeah, I would say a structure is is important in trauma recovery for sure because it gives you a way to feel like you're taking back control or you're taking back power. You know, because these people come into your life and they create nothing but chaos.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there is there ends up being there's a certain point where sometimes that chaos it becomes so familiar that when it does leave you you go. Where? Wait, hold on. Where? Where did that go? And you have to. You have to sort of come to this realization that you know what you're doing. What is happening is you know you were attached to that, but that's not healthy. And you need to. It's just like even you know there, there are obviously varying degrees of trauma, right? But people that come through like abusive relationships, right? Whether the psychological, physical, or or a mixture of both, you know they become so. It's like Stockholm syndrome, right? You become so detached. You become so attached to the control the coercive control that that person has over you whether they beat you whether they they rape you whether they they belittle you in public berate you about things you know manipulation gaslighting narcissism those are very insidious things that really creep deep into your psyche so when you're able to come back and, and to really take control of that it's amazing and you know. One of the reasons why I share my father's letters is to show his manipulation. Like, here's a man manipulating a child whose mother he murdered, trying to make the child feel bad or plans about his mother to justify his actions or to make himself feel better. It's very insidious. It's very evil. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, but it's real. And when I share those things, unfortunately, I mean, it's amazing when people reach out to me because they do daily like yourself right but these people that reach out to me i would say the majority of people that reach out to me via social media email or they listen to the podcast they see the film tremendous amount of them are survivors of physical and sexual abuse in relationships whether that relationship was with with a with a family member or with a spouse or partner and they take so much solace in listening to my story they take so much solace in in when i read these letters or when i talk about these behaviors with other people, because we've all been through it. And we've we collectively, as a society, as a world, have all been through a major trauma together with COVID, right? So I find it even people, you know, nowadays, even people who have had the most cushy and wonderful lives have also been through. You know, it might not, it's not as severe as like, you know, having a parent murder another parent and being cast aside by your family in, in your time of need. But you know it's a trauma nonetheless, and we need to understand that. So you know I, when I talk to these people and they reach out, or when I share my story, it's amazing to connect with them. And then a lot of times they're like, you know, my story isn't that bad. You know, I see. You know, a lot of the a lot of the thing is people will see the film or listen to my story and they'll go, you know, they're like, I feel sorry. I felt bad about saying this, but you know, I, I realize you know I've been through all this, and I listened to your story and I go, God, I have nothing to complain about. <laughs> and I'm like, and, and they, they're like, well, no. I'm like, that doesn't make your trauma invalid like Mm -hmm. your story is your own story just because mine is so fucking horrific doesn't mean like i win the prize at the fair right you know it doesn't invalidate your personal experience i mean you know you need to acknowledge and accept that and they really appreciate that message and that's you know that's the goal of me sharing my story and and building the podcast and as more and more people continue to listen and discover my story and and listen to the message. I think it's, it's really cool.
0: Yeah. There's just something about hearing a story from someone that, that is one up of yours that gives us this certain comfort to know that your story is much greater than mine, but you are pushing through and you're surviving and, and you're, and you're thriving. So thank you for being with us here today. Just, just tell us where our listeners can find you. Sure. So you can find my
1: podcast, Moving Past Murder, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, you can also go to my website, which is collierlandry.com, www.collierlandry.com. Also, you can find me on social media. It's all at Collier Landry. So Instagram at Collier Landry. You can find me on TikTok, where I've, started recently sharing my story and, and really intimate details where I'll continue doing that outside of the podcast. That's tiktok.com forward slash at Collier Landry and on Twitter at Collier Landry. So everything is at Collier Landry. I have a YouTube channel as well, where I also post the video version of the podcast that I release every week. There's lots of great stuff. And I'm, as I continue to delve into it more and more, Um, I'm really excited about what I'm sharing with the audience, and I appreciate you having me on the program to
0: talk to your audience. Not a problem. Well, we will make sure to put all of that in the description of this podcast. So appreciate your vulnerability and, and willingness to share with others.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: As we were listening to Collier's story today, I was reminded of how important it is for us to realize the power of our own voice. We share our trauma, we share our stories, and so many times we want to just kind of bottle it up and keep it on the inside, but what a comfort it is for us to know that we could help other people through our trauma. Now, I mentioned earlier in the opening of the show that sometimes we look at a closed door as a failure, but what if in our trauma we looked at that even as an opportunity, because there is somebody in this world that is dealing with something just like you are. Maybe not the same exact circumstance, but a circumstance closely relatable. And you have pushed through and you could share with them your experience. What kind of world would we live in if we all decided to just encourage each other through our trauma? Thank you for listening today. I'm Doc Brian. Of course, you can find all of my social media links at thedocbrian.com at the bottom of that website. Um, and of course, Doc Talks is a part of Be Frank Network. You can find all of our podcasts there at bfranknetwork.com. Thank you for listening today. And we hope to see you again soon. Goodbye.